experienced it. That feeling of discomfort when you encounter something less familiar. Sometimes it might be a new place and things look a little different. You don't know the way around and you feel lost. And you just want to leave. Or other times it's a different culture and the ideas shaping the people and the way they do things is different from what you're used to. It keeps relationships a little awkward. And instead of drawing nearer to understand them, we keep our distance. And sometimes that happens with stuff we read as well. I mean, if all you're used to is, say, the funnies and Sports Illustrated, you know, encountering something like Homer's Iliad or Shakespeare leaves you feeling lost. Like, what is this imagery? And wherefore does he speak thus? Instead of drawing nearer to understand, we can shy away from the less familiar. People do that with parts of the Bible as well, especially Revelation. I mean, to encounter Revelation is to enter a world with an array of heavenly creatures and a seven-headed beast and a great dragon, war horses released, a scroll that's eaten, a lion that's really a lamb with seven eyes, bowls of wrath poured on the earth, and a beautified people compared also to a glorified city, What is this, we might think, and where am I? What do I do with these things, and how do they help me as a Christian? And then instead of drawing nearer to understand, it's it's easier to stick with the familiar, right? You kind kind of rush through Revelation. I'm going back to Paul for a while, right? Well, that plays out in church history as well, especially in our circles. You know, a number of the old confessions... And lectionaries refer to Revelation, but do so in a very limited manner. They, they cite the passages related to Christ's redeeming work, or the new heavens and the new earth. But at large, they stay away from the rest of the book. I mean, on a, on a Sunday morning, have you ever participated in a corporate reading of the war in heaven? Michael and his archangels fighting, fighting the dragon... What about the seven bulls of wrath or, or Babylon being hurled into the sea? You ever read that in a corporate worship setting? We tend to stay away from that which unsettles us, disturbs us a little bit. But in doing so, we miss the promised blessing of God's revelation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, God promises a great blessing for those who read, hear, and keep this prophecy. By preaching through it, my hope is not only to equip you to understand its language and symbols and themes and use of the Old Testament. I want you to keep returning to its message to know more of Christ, to find endurance in the face of persecution... To gain discernment in overcoming the beast. And to receive comfort of the new creation glories. So we're going to cover just the first three verses today. And they, 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 they introduce the book and they tell us what Revelation is. So read them with me. Starting in verse 1. The Revelation... ...of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He, or Jesus, made it known by sending his angel to his servant John... ...who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy... And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Only three verses, but there's much to cover, so let's do it by answering four questions. And the first is this, what is this book? What is this book? Verse 1 tells us plainly 
It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, some take that to mean it's a revelation about Jesus Christ, and that's true at one level. But the rest of the verse clarifies that the of Jesus Christ means that it is given by Jesus Christ. It is a revelation from Jesus Christ. We see God the Father giving the revelation to Jesus in order that Jesus would then show uh, that revelation to his servants. Okay, and so right away we recognize a theme that sounds much like John's gospel, doesn't it? God's revelation comes in and through the person of his son. If you want to know God, listen to Jesus. Jesus reveals God, he reveals God's character, he reveals God's purpose in grace. Also, by using the word revelation, we discover that revelation is not a book that aims to shroud things in mystery. Okay, throughout the New Testament, this word has to do with the unveiling of what is hidden, disclosing what you, you couldn't see before. It has to do with, with pulling back the curtains so that we can see things as they really are, as how God wants us to see them. We might even compare it to a sealed scroll that's then opened for you to know the contents. Such a word draws you nearer, doesn't it? I mean, in his wisdom, God does keep some things hidden and sealed from us. But some things he chooses to reveal. He wants you to see what the Spirit enabled John himself to see. So when you come to this book, don't come thinking, God's trying to hide something from me. Think, God is trying to show me something he wants me to see. Now, this notion of unveiling, this pulling back of the curtain, so to speak, is characteristic of some other literature floating around in John's day, uh, which much later than John became labeled apocalyptic. Okay, you pick up any commentary or, or uh, uh, any study Bible, you could probably look down at your footnotes in your study Bible if you've got one, and it probably says something about Revelation being apocalyptic literature, and they're trying to, to make sense of its genre, right? Because if you know a book's genre, then you're more in tune with how it functions and works, and uh, uh, it, it's, it's helpful for you to understand it, right? You, you don't read a love letter from your, from your wife like you would an encyclopedia, right? Or you don't read a text message the same way you'd read a novel. you got to know the genre, and a lot of times we're doing this intuitively when we're bouncing from a letter of Paul back to a narrative in the Old Testament. We're kind of doing it intuitively because we know what it's like. Well, some people have tried to label this as apocalyptic, and sure enough, I mean, you read things like Third Enoch and Apocalypse of Abraham. I mean, they're out there. You can read them on the Internet if you want. There, there's some overlap. You're going to see angelic mediators, and you're going to see symbolic imagery. Uh, you're going to see the unveiling of the heavenly perspective and, and this radical focus on, on the end-time judgment. And where all of this literature kind of overlaps with Revelation, we, we can gain some, some real insights. But I want you to be careful. Revelation is also very distinct from this literature. And for starters, the author doesn't write under a pseudonym like we find in that other literature. John actually names himself in verses 2 and 4. Uh, Revelation also interweaves imagery from the Old Testament more often and in a far richer manner than the other literature. But most importantly, Revelation is unique in its focus on the lordship of Jesus Christ. Okay, the other literature kind of focuses on like God's transcendence in general, in a general way. Revelation is a Christian document. It is Trinitarian through and through. 
Its focus is on the lordship of Jesus Christ and how the redeeming work and reign of Jesus bring all of the Old Testament prophecy to its climax. Now, speaking of prophecy, that's, I think, the more helpful character uh, category here. Uh, notice that verse 3 even identifies Revelation that way. Blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy. Okay, prophecy. So far more common is what Revelation shares with Old Testament prophecy. Especially books like Daniel and Ezekiel, Joel, Zechariah, parts of Isaiah. If you want to grasp this book, if you want to understand its imagery and symbols, you don't have to be a scholar in apocalyptic literature. You simply need to saturate yourself with Old Testament prophecy. The Old Testament prophets are some of your best teachers in understanding Revelation. John laces nearly every sentence with the Old Testament. At times, there will be times, and we'll, we'll see this as we go through the book, where, where John is following the entire narrative structure of like an Old Testament story, like the Exodus narrative. Okay? Um, and he's, he's following that, while at the same time drawing from one prophet and then combining it with multiple texts from other prophets to then show how Jesus' person and work bring all the threads to their intended goal. And it's just absolutely fascinating. There are layers upon layers happening all at once. So read Revelation as you would Old Testament prophecy. I mean, when you, I mean, when you think about Ezekiel... And he has these visions and he says he's carried away in the spirit. Uh, or Daniel 7, right? You've got these four beasts rising up. And Daniel then showing that these represent nations, right? Or, or the night visions of Zechariah 1 through 6. When you, when you read these, all of a sudden Revelation doesn't seem all that strange from the other, from the other prophecy in Scripture. I mean, come on, Zechariah's got a... A winged, some winged women like storks carrying a, a woman in a basket and dropping it off in Shinar. Like, what in the world, right? You come to Revelation, that Revelation looks easy when you see stuff like this. So, so it doesn't seem all that strange from the, this other prophecy in Scripture. But it's how these prophecies interact with one another in, in light of Christ that gives us understanding into God's character and purpose. Now, there is one further genre to address when it comes to Revelation. And when we get to verse 4, uh, we'll see that the whole book is a letter that's written to seven churches. Okay? And that, too, will affect how we read this book. It was... It wasn't written just for some saints in the far distant future. It was written for these seven churches going through what they were going through in that day. So as so, so we'll, we'll get to more of that next time. But for now, one further remark on, on what this book is. As a revelation from Jesus Christ given to the church by way of prophecy, it is the word of God. Okay, notice verse 2. John bore witness to the word of God, and that can be understood as the word given by God and the testimony given by Jesus Christ. Okay, so think about that. In verse 1, God the Father stands as the source of Jesus' revelation, which Jesus then has his angel deliver to John. But in verse 2, the word given by God parallels the testimony given by Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus' testimony further describes God's self-revelation. God's word and Jesus' testimony are not different things, they are equal things. And right here, John starts a theme that spans the whole book. Jesus' words belong to a category reserved only for Yahweh in the Old Testament. So, what is this book? It is a revelation given by God through Jesus that comes to the church by way of prophecy. And it's not a book written to conceal, but to reveal, to uncover the things that God wants you to see. Second question, how did it come? 
How did it come? Verse 1 tells us that God the Father gave the revelation to Jesus to show to his servants. But he also adds that Jesus made it known by sending it through his angel to his servant John, who then bore witness to the church. And so it comes from God to Jesus, to an angel, to John, to the church. Now what's so significant about that? Well, it does remind us of other places in Scripture where God gave his word by way of angels to a servant who then gave that to, to the people, right? Uh, Acts 7, Galatians 3 tell us that God delivered the law covenant through angels. Mo- Moses was key, but, but angels helped. Also, both Daniel and Zechariah have visions where an angel then comes and interprets for them the, the visions that they are seeing. And the same happens with John in Revelation. So John is, what's being depicted here is that John stands in this line of God's authorized prophets who received God's word in a vision and then was helped to understand those visions by angels. But John is also doing something more. Okay, have you ever watched a movie that begins with a little snapshot of what's going to happen later, and then it kind of rewinds and starts going through the narrative. Well, John is doing something like that here. If you read through Revelation in one sitting, which was meant to be read that way, what happens in chapter 4? Well, in chapter 4, we see God enthroned, And he is holding a scroll, and it is sealed. Okay, what happens in chapter 5? Well, Jesus comes and he receives that scroll from God the Father. Chapter 6 to 8 are then the breaking of those seven seals on the scroll so as to disclose its content. What happens in chapter 10? A great and mighty angel descends from heaven, from where the throne is, right? And what does he have in his hand? The open scroll in his hand, which he then takes and gives to John and says, eat it, right? And then John takes it and proclaims it to others. So in a sentence here, John has summarized how the book is going to unfold. It unfolds just as the revelation came to him. Something else about how it came. Verse 1 says, God gave it to Jesus to show his servants. Show. Okay, the same language appears in Ezekiel, like when God... Shows him, again, like with Ezekiel pulling back the curtain. I mean, the people can't see this, but Ezekiel's given eyes to see the cherubim lifting this throne, God's throne chariot up and away from the city, right? Meaning the glory of God's presence is no longer in Israel. They are so rebellious. He's going out of the city. God shows Ezekiel this. Uh, We find it in Zechariah when the Lord shows him these four horsemen and, and their chariots and or later on the four craftsmen or, or the, the high priest before God and Satan accusing him, right? So what we're seeing here is the language of prophetic vision. And that continues with the next word as well. It says that Jesus made it known. Okay, that language appears in Daniel chapter 2, verse 23, when the Lord makes known to Daniel the meaning of the symbols in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Okay, likewise, the contents of Revelation are the stuff of prophetic vision. It's highly symbolic. The images and signs represent certain, uh, certain realities that were familiar to John's readers. Now, to be clear, John isn't writing in code. It's not like he's seeing something, but he's kind of symbolizing it with something else. 
Or like God's telling him, hey, write this down. And John's like, ooh, I'll I'll just symbolize that with a little word picture here. No, he's actually seeing these things, right? He's He's writing down exactly what he sees. But in those images are realities that either John or the rest of Scripture help us understand. So often the book of Revelation tells you exactly what the images represent. For example... We are told in chapter 1, verse 20, that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. In chapter 5, verse 8, the golden bowls of incense are the prayers of the saints. Right? The fine linen of the saints are their righteous deeds in chapter 19, verse 8. So the book itself tells you what the symbols are, what they represent. And where it doesn't, those symbols can be discerned from where they appear elsewhere in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament context helps you understand the symbols. So, for example, you got the beasts in Daniel 7 that, that rise up. And then you, you've got in, in Daniel 7, the Lord identifying these beasts as nations, powerful nations, rebellious political powers. And that helps us understand the beast in Revelation and what it stands for. Or if the Psalms associate a ruler or a king with the powerful horn of an ox. Right? Some of you know this from just some of the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament that God would raise up a horn right, for Israel. Well, that helps us understand how John uses horns in Revelation to represent rulers. Okay? Or you can think of things like the number seven and why that would, why would that signify completion? And you go back to creation and jubilees and things like this and you figure, oh, wow, there's seven all over the place in the the Old Testament and, and this is the way it functions. So Revelation itself And then also the Old Testament are your best helps in discerning the realities that the visions stand for. Okay, now we'll add to that next time when we get to the letters and what that means. But for now, Revelation and the Old Testament, those are your go-to sources for understanding these, these visions. Third question, what's it about? What's it about? Well, verse 1 says that God gave it to Jesus to show his servants what must soon take place. What must soon take place. I just mentioned Daniel 2 a minute ago, the the Lord making known to Daniel the meaning of the images in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Well, the words, what must soon take place, those appear in Daniel 2 as well, and they help us understand what Revelation is about. So let's go there. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. You can uh, actually flip to page 738 if you're using a pew Bible. And uh, just to give you some context here, before we look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 19, there's, the context is this. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, right? And he wants it interpreted. And none of his magicians can figure it out. And so he's threatening them, threatening them all with, with, with death, right? So they can't figure it out. Daniel then goes in and seeks mercy from the God of heaven concerning this this mystery. And it says in Daniel 2.19 that uh, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep 
and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells with him. So God reveals this mystery to Daniel, reveals deep and hidden things. And so Daniel then goes into the king and the king asks, hey, you know, do you have the dream and its interpretation? And, uh, of course, Daniel says, yeah. So we get to verses 28 and 29. Daniel says, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Now, that's our illusion. Okay, the Greek translation of Daniel has what must take place in the latter days. Now, glancing back at Revelation, you're probably noticing the shift. Daniel says what must take place in the latter days. John says what must take place soon. And there's a reason for that. The latter days were far away for Daniel. But for John, they were taking place soon. They were taking place soon, not in the sense that he thought everything would just happen tomorrow, but in the sense that Jesus' first coming had set in motion the latter days that Daniel expected to happen, right? In the light of the Christ event, the latter days are upon us, John is saying. Well, what is it, though, that must soon take place? What is it that Daniel said was going to happen in the latter days and that John is saying is going to happen soon? Well, if we keep reading Daniel 2, we learn both the dream and its interpretation. Verse 32. There was a great image, and it says, The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron. Its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces. And they became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That was a dream. Right? It's it's shrouded in mystery. Any one of you who wakes up and shares that with somebody else in the church, they'd be like, yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's weird. Right? Well, then we learn the interpretation. Uh, Verse 37 says, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens making you rule over them all. Well, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over, the, over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay." And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, 
and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. So in other words, you've got this picture of Nebuchadnezzar ruling, right, the, the known world, and, and then a kingdom coming and conquering him, and then other kingdoms coming and conquering those kingdoms, and then kingdoms conquering kingdoms, until one day this stone smashes all the kingdoms, and it represents God's kingdom that rises like a mountain and covers the whole earth forever. So by alluding to Daniel 2, what is John telling us? John is telling us that in the person and work of Jesus, God's mountain is rising. That's what must soon take place. That's what Revelation is about. It's about God's work in Jesus Christ to replace all rebel kingdoms with his own kingdom that will cover the earth and last forever. Now, that doesn't mean the message of Revelation sticks with only the distant future, right? There's, there's a progression to, to the end-time events. There's a lot included within this, what will take place soon, right? I mean, within the book of Revelation, there, there are those, those, those events include the, the current situation, like John's vision and the tribulation. And the state of the seven churches who have to go through the tribulation. Yep, threw that out there. Guess you know where we're heading. So much for left behind. They include the current situation. They include the near future. Like the persecution and martyrdom of the church. And the, and the gospel proclamation to the nations. And they include the more distant future, like Jesus' return and, and the new heavens and earth. So together, this progression of historical events related to Jesus are bound up with the latter days that Daniel was talking about, and in which God has purposed to replace all kingdoms with his own kingdom. That's what Revelation is about. Final question What's the goal? What's the goal? Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So it makes sense. Revelation was written as a circular letter, so it makes sense that a guy is handed the letter, and while this letter is traveling around to the seven churches, they're standing up and reading this to the congregation, right? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed is the one who... Who, uh, and, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. In other words, the stated goal is not mere foresight into God's unfolding plan. It is to awaken obedience in God's people and to assure divine blessing on those who act accordingly until God's plans are complete. So Revelation has an ethical goal, all right, which is fidelity to Jesus at all costs until the end. Uh, the hearing here has to do with your spiritual attentiveness uh, to the words spoken, right? You hear them for what they really are, the words of God, and then you follow them. Uh, in fact, hearing and obeying, sometimes our English translations go back and forth between hear, translating a, uh, the word the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, hearing and obeying, they go back and forth. It's because um, in, in the Old Testament, if you did not obey, then you did not actually hear, right? Every parent in the room's like, yeah, I know what that's like. <laughs> or maybe you served in the military and somebody doesn't follow through with the command, Right? From your superior officer. They didn't hear you then. As, you, as they ought to have heard. Keeping is the other word. 
uh, it has to do with observing the, the ethical demands placed on the Christians and then following through. And those largely involve resisting the rebel kingdom's idolatry and then persevering in allegiance to Jesus in thought, word, and deed. And that will become readily apparent when we jump into the letters. So faithfulness to Jesus here is also seen as urgent because it says the time is near. Uh, what time? Well, the time of Christ's kingdom breaking into the, into the present. If the, if the mountain of God's kingdom is going up, then your participation and any flirting with the rebel kingdoms needs to stop. Okay? No compromise. All of us alike must turn and then give total allegiance to Jesus. The time is near. Now, for those persevering this way, God offers His blessing. And, and this, is the first, this is the first of seven Beatitudes that are sprinkled throughout Revelation. And by reading these other Beatitudes, we come to understand the blessing that's in view. So, for example, in chapter 14, verse 13, those who die in the Lord find rest in Jesus' presence. Uh, in chapter 19, verse 9, the faithful ones get to share in the marriage supper of the Lamb. In chapter 20, verse 6, it's a share in the first resurrection and escape from the second death, which is also the lake of fire. In chapter 22, verse 14, it's the divine right to the tree of life and freedom to enter the new Jerusalem. And so the blessing of verse 3 includes all that's bound up with receiving God's reward in the kingdom. But I think we can say even more. In addition to the future reward for endurance is the present reward of seeing Jesus' glory within the revelation itself. Okay, you are blessed when you read this book because in it you see the glory of what Jesus' suffering purchased for countless multitudes. You see the glory of His presence as He walks among the churches. You see the glory of His victory already over the dragon. And you see the glory of his sheltering presence for the martyrs who are already right now before his throne. And when you see that glory, it blesses you. It gives you courage to endure to the end. Along with the others who are before God's throne. So I just want to thank Chris for helping me see that last aspect of God's God's blessing here in this, in this verse. Okay, we've answered our four questions. I'm going to just discuss a few ways these answers should affect you going home. One, saturate yourself with the Old Testament. Saturate yourself with the Old Read the law. Learn its narrative shape. Pay attention to its events and its various metaphors used to describe those events. Notice the descriptions of the tabernacle and how that relates to what John is seeing in the heavenly places. Notice how the number of seven pops up. Notice the plagues on Egypt and whether the plagues in Revelation sound similar and then determine why and what makes them different. Right? Then learn how the prophets are referring back to the law and sometimes using imagery from the past in order to describe what the future is going to be like. Also give special attention to those books which share a lot in common with the symbolic world of Revelation. Let me give you just a few reading assignments if we want to get more specific. Start with Ezekiel. Start with Ezekiel's vision. Then go to Daniel. And read through Daniel and, and pay attention to the way, to the, to the, like the beasts and the, and the statue we read about earlier. And, and pay attention to the way God interprets those visions for Daniel. And see how they relate to Revelation. Read Joel and Zechariah. Uh, Brian Walker can point you to some good commentaries on those books. We have them in the, in the church library. Uh, you can even re-listen to the sermon series on Zechariah that we did Several years ago, and, or, or Joel from the church website. 
The goal is to steep yourself in the language of prophetic vision and recognize how it functions, how it works. And that will equip you to understand revelation. Many of us don't get revelation because we don't really have our minds saturated with the Old Testament. Okay? So read the Old Testament... And I think you're going to find yourself very encouraged when you, when you jump into Revelation in your own reading. You're going to start, these connections are just going to start, right? You're just, you're, as you read, you're just going to, boom, I saw that in Daniel. Boom, I saw that in Joel. Boom, I saw that in the Exodus. Boom, it's just going to be there for you. All right. Something else to take home. Obey the book. Okay, obey this prophecy. We saw from verse 3 the need for hearing and keeping this prophecy. Now, in Scripture, prophecy includes prediction. But we can't reduce prophecy to prediction. Okay? If we do, you're not going to walk... You're going to walk away going, that's for those guys in the future when all that stuff goes down. I'll probably be dead by then. Right? It's not just prediction... Prophecy includes insight to the reader's own circumstances and how they ought to respond in them. Okay? Some views of Revelation, some views, some people who interpret Revelation, they push everything so much into the future, like chapter 4 onwards, all future, that it doesn't have much to say to the church now. But that's not how prophecy works. Prophecy regularly addresses the community where they are. And so you will find it critiquing political idolatry. You will find it critiquing economic oppression. You will find it unmasking these false ideologies that are circulating in their day. You will find it exposing the dangers of what it looks like to compromise the truth and how it kills the church. It will call people to repentance and deeper faithfulness in the here and now. In other words, Revelation isn't written to tickle your curiosity about the future. It's not there for you to amaze others with your prophecy charts. Revelation exists to help a suffering church remain faithful to Jesus in a very deceptive worldwide assault by the dragon and his beast-like minions. It's very sad when Christians shy from Revelation because they're less familiar with it but it's also very sad when Christians who are fascinated with Revelation can fill up a whiteboard with end-time events and yet never speak to their neighbor about Jesus. Or rarely serve their local church. Or hardly contribute to the needs of the saints. I'm not saying don't work it out on the whiteboard. That's not wrong. I'm saying that prophecy, by its very nature, demands an obedient response from us. The real mark of those who understand this book is that they keep the words written in it. The real mark of those who understand this book is that they follow the Lamb wherever wherever He goes, and in His footsteps they bear public witness to His name in the face of suffering and death. Listen to these words by Brian Tabb from his book, All Things New. Revelation is not a riddle to be decoded by experts or marginalized by those in the pews. It is a book of Christian scripture meant to decode us, decode our reality, capture our imaginations, and master our lives with the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So start praying now that the message of Revelation would master our lives, would master your life. Pray the Lord would use these messages to decode our reality, to to maybe uncover some of the false ideologies we're buying into. Maybe some of the political idolatry that we're buying into. Start praying now that God would further align our hearts with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. 
And here's something else to pray for. Pray for an ear to hear. Pray for an ear to hear. Again, hearing has to do with spiritual attentiveness to the words of God. Several things can hinder that attentiveness, though. Uh, For instance, in John chapter 8, verse 47, the reason that the Jews can't hear Jesus' words is that they're not born of God. They're not born of God. So without the new birth, it is impossible for you to hear God's word the way that it's meant to be heard. Uh, also in John chapter 5, verses 39, I mean, 38 to 44, the, the reason the people, the reason the Jewish leaders cannot hear Jesus' words is that they love the praise of man more than the praise of God. So fearing man or desiring the praise of man can hinder you from hearing God's word as you need to hear, hear it. Uh, And then not too long ago, we learned from Hebrews chapter 3 that a heart can be hardened by sin, and that hardening by sin can cause you not to hear the words of God. And so what, what is it that opens the ear to actually hear God's word? It is the Spirit of God, it is humility, and it is new desires to follow Jesus instead of doing things your own way. Okay, so as we enter this series, start praying now for the Lord to change our hearts so that they're not stubborn. Start praying now for the Spirit of God to be working in our midst when the Word is preached. And not just when the Word is preached from Revelation, but when the Word is preached from Matthew, when the Word is preached from Colossians. Start praying now that that we concern ourselves with the Lord's glory and not our own glory. Start praying now that we keep ourselves from sin of any kind and its deceptive ways of persuading us not to listen to God's word. And then finally, take heart, Christ's kingdom is rising. Take heart, Christ's kingdom is rising. Some of you are walking faithfully with Jesus right now, but that faithfulness is being tested Faithfulness has meant for you choosing to love a very difficult, uncaring person. Faithfulness has has meant choosing to love in relationships where that love often is not reciprocated. Following in Jesus' footsteps has meant walking a road where the closest of friends has abandoned you because of that faithfulness. Jesus. Or perhaps you've labored hard for years to see others come to Christ. You've seen churches planted and growing, but evil leaders have now made it impossible for you to continue that work in the same country. Or maybe the Lord has given you eyes to see the craftiness of Satan's influence in our culture. Perhaps even how the church has has started compromising with enemies at times. And you are grieving. Down to the core. You you hate how the enemy steals, kills, and destroys. And your heart breaks. You faithfully speak into the situations, but it's like nobody listens or nobody cares. Maybe your heart breaks for the next generation and seeing what they're up against culturally, culturally, and you wonder... Are they even going to make it? Maybe you're just hurting over the brokenness of this world in general. Like a man that I met this week in Sprouts who's weeping over all of the sadness he sees in the world and losing his father. Revelation doesn't ignore any of his darkness. If anything... Its earthly visions bring us face to face with that darkness and the suffering and the evil and the death. And then from a he- it ramps it up even more. We, we feel like it's 
awful, and it is. And then it ramps it up anymore. It said, from the heavenly perspective, it's this awful. A dragon is involved. A beast is involved. And it's a systematic destruction of, of, of the truth and, and the church. It's part of the beast's plot to overthrow the saints in God's kingdom. But then at the same time, from that heavenly perspective, we see a dragon that's been defeated and thrown down to the earth. We've seen a head that's been lopped off. Right? We see one who sits on the throne ruling history. God helps us to see that evil is there, but it's limited. It's got ten days. It can only take a third or a fourth. And then it's going to be over with the lake of fire. The evil will end. More than that, we see that Christ's victory at the cross and in the resurrection already, right, what's past, it already assures us that Christ's kingdom is on the rise. The stone of God's kingdom will not only shatter the darkness, but it will replace it with a kingdom that floods the earth in glory. With Jesus on the throne, there is always hope. That is the message of Revelation. So it's like, comes to us like Aslan's words came to Lucy. Courage, dear heart. Take courage, dear one. See, we have the revelation of Jesus Christ. God gave it to him that he might give it to you so that you don't grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this book, and I look forward to getting into more of its details with the church. I ask that you would strengthen us in weeks to come with it, that we might not grow weary and lose heart. For those who are having trouble seeing Jesus' victory in the midst of their grief, they're having trouble seeing his rule and reign. In the midst of their confusion, they lack clarity and sometimes have doubts about whether he will come through. Would you lift them up? Would this, be, was it, would this book, through the Spirit's help, be a time when God lifts them up from the miry bog and sets their feet upon the rock that they might endure to the end with those who've gone before us? In Jesus' pray, amen. Thank you.